three, two, one. Welcome to the Center Bench Sports Podcast, where four washed-up athletes sit around and scrutinize sports. We have Mikey, Pale, Luke, and myself, Luca. Boys, we're alive on this fine Saturday morning. The boys have their coffee brewed up, and we're ready to roll. How's everybody doing? Great. Doing fantastic. Great. My coffee's awful. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into it, I want to bring up something with you guys. I came across a uh, GQ article with uh, Russell Wilson, and everybody knows Russell Wilson, right? Kind of a square, but he's a good quarterback. Can I just share a few quotes with you guys? And I, I yeah. just want you guys your opinions on, on what, he, what he had to say. So quote one on this GQ article, and keep in mind it's in the Valentine's special edition, so there's you know lovey-dovey talk. Wait, is it well, him and Sierra getting interviewed or just him? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Russell and Sierra. Okay, she's great. Yeah. So, uh, quote one. It's always a blast that we get into do love together, Wilson says. He's in his hyperbaric chamber laid back on a pillow, the white tent around him gently wheezing. Quote two. This week's is going to be a challenging week, babe, because I've got this responsibility. What about you? What do you have? And at the end of every week... We always go through a checklist of questions of, you know, how'd I love you this week? Russell Wilson. Quote three. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll send an inspirational video just to the kids. For example, I'll say to Future, hey, you know, be a leader, Future. Be who you are. And to my daughter, Sienna, don't forget you're a queen. So, boys, what do you think about that? Like, to me, I knew he was a little bit of a square, but I don't know. This article just screams like, what the hell? It sound like quotes that you would like if you get uh someone cold calling knocking on your door with like a pamphlet or a brochure <laughs> to join some like cult <laughs> that sounds like one of those like quotes and inspirational things that would be on it <laughs> it's it, it sounds like tom brady quotes that you guys would be drooling over if it was tom brady but, uh, <laughs> no, because it's russell wilson it's like oh this guy's a loser he's a square but tom brady would be the coolest guy in the world i don't know man like he said how do we do love together like i don't know that's just <laughs> I, I just can't picture my myself saying that to my my fiance. Like, oh, what what do you say? <laughs> I don't I don't write down I don't write down a list and be like, hey babe, how did I love you this week? All right, uh, should we get into it? All right, let's get into it. Cool. So if you follow the Toronto Raptors, you sure as hell know who Blake Murphy is. He's the staff writer uh, for The Athletic covering the Toronto Raptors and then formerly managing editor uh, and part owner of Raptors Republic, which a lot of Raptors fans love and, and follow. So Blake, welcome to the Center Bench podcast. How's it going? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Uh, doing doing good. To start us off, I uh, just wanted to un understand what you think or how would you describe the Raptors season so far and how are things progressing from the start of the season? Yeah, it hasn't been uh, hasn't been the most fun of years so far. It's uh, you know beyond just on the court, the fact that they're displaced from home and they're playing during a pandemic, and there's obviously a mental health toll to that. Um, it hasn't been, you know, I guess the escape that sports normally is because there's this cloud of not feeling the best about it hanging over things uh, on the court. You know, I think that's maybe had an effect. Obviously, they've underperformed a little bit. Uh, some of their deeper metrics suggest they're they're better than this. So, um, you know, whether you chalk that up to luck or, or not executing well down the stretch or, or just kind of, you know, maybe they're a, like 5% extra fatigued or something, you know, this could just as easily be a, a 16 and 12 team uh, as it is 13 and 15. So it, it's it's been weird. It's definitely been the, the most like underwhelming season that I've covered. Um, you know, I've been super fortunate that this has only been like my real job instead of a hobby since <laughs> like Lowry got 
to Toronto. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you know, there were some blogging years before that where it was a little darker, but... <laughs> With the Bargnani days, you missed out on the, the prime yeah, days. Yeah, I mean, I was doing some blogging like as far back as like 08. So I got some of the bad years, but it's uh, those were years when I could just like, oh, I'm not doing anything. Like, I'm not doing it tonight. Hands off. I can't write about Dominic Maguire. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Blake, how was, how was it running Raptors Republic? And uh, how is it working with the athletic covering the raps right now? It, it Like you said, it honestly sounds like a dream job, if you ask me. Yeah, it's great. It's it's so much fun. You know, even now where, you know, I'm not around the team and I'm not at games and practices, it's still a blast. I'm still writing about basketball and, and you know, as unfortunate as it is to have to weave COVID through that or, or, you know, the social justice issues that we were trying to weave through our content before, it's still, you know, a very fun job and I'm very thankful to have the platform. Um, you know, it's been a little different, obviously not being around and stuff. You just you know, I don't want to complain. It's still a cool job, but you lose some of the, you know, if you guys read my stuff, you've probably noticed it's a lot more analysis and a lot less like getting to know guys and storytelling and stuff like that. Um, just cause we're not around, uh, in terms of Raptors Republic, uh, it was great. So, um, Zarar and Sam were the two guys that originally started it in 08. They brought me on as one of the, the first kind of guys when ESPN was envisioning, uh, this true hoop network, which kind of was like before it's time looking back on it now, um, and it's cool. I think from like 2012 to like 2018, I was the managing editor and kind of ran everything. It's great. It's, um, you know, there are challenges to being a standalone blog. The, the true Hoop network doesn't exist anymore. There was never a financial relationship there. So like, um, you know, that could be a grind to do that and not get a lot of money out of it. But it's also, you know, you look around the industry, especially here in Toronto, um, the number of people that we've been able to help give a platform to and launch like Will Lou, um, you know, like Lewis Atzman, Samson Folk, Katie Heindel, like all these people who at least for part of their journeys have had like a little stop at RR, whether it's podcasting or writing or whatever. Um, you know, that's probably my favorite thing about it. And, and it's probably why I still stay involved now, kind of in just like a coaching or a helping role. Um, you know, it's important to to me and to us as a site that, that, those voices continue, you know, those, we continue to find those people and, and uh, those voices continue to get heard, especially since, you know, this isn't the most diverse of industries uh, in terms of who's covering the sport. So uh, the more opportunities you can, you can try to help people with like that, the better. Um, so, yeah, I still, I mean, I still read Raptors Republic every day. Those are still all my, all my people. Um, so it's cool. It's, it's been cool to see it kind of continue on and still, still thrive after I, left officially nice you had mentioned uh blake some disappointing times with the raptors if we transition that into the start of the season who's been your biggest disappointment on the court thus far into the season and in contrast who's maybe the biggest surprise that you've been impressed with yeah i think you know baines gets the the biggest disappointment nod there, there's obviously the terrence davis thing which is a, a disappointment for far bigger reasons than basketball um, that we should maybe get some clarity on uh, tomorrow. Um, but, you know, Baines is a guy that I thought, obviously you're not going to replace Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka with one guy, especially a 35-year-old. But I thought it was a reasonable deal. I thought, you know, he fits the dropback scheme. He's a decent passer, elite screen setter. I thought he'd be able to plug in and do a little more than he's done. Obviously the last maybe 12 games, um, he's trended in the right direction. I, I thought the game the game the other night, him getting some minutes off the bench had him looking a little bit more comfortable. Um, but I don't know. I, I thought the Baines-Len duo would be 
decent. Like even as a st- I still figured they'd close with OG at the five a lot, uh, but I figured it'd be a lot steadier uh, than it has been. Um, in terms of the other side of things, you know, uh, uh, Utah's been awesome. It's uh, he's a guy I really liked in the G League the, the last fan. two years, but I wasn't sure. You know, sometimes the guys like that that are like Swiss Army knives have trouble breaking through to the next level because you know, even if you're solid across the board, what is the one skill that gets your foot in the door, right? Like, you know, if you're Matt Thomas, well, okay, you're a shooter and that's going to get you in the door. And if you're a big, you're big and, and that might get you in the door. And um, so, you know, a guy like you who's kind of just like well-rounded, uh, reads the game well, you know, reads defensive rebounds well, but isn't an elite, elite rebounder. Uh, it's, it was just a matter of, is a guy like that going to be able to get the opportunity? It's been really cool to see him, uh, see him run with it and, you know, maybe play his way into a full-time contract. Nice. And cool. do you, you mentioned with uh, OG in the, in the five spot there, can you see the Raptors small ball starting lineup with OG and Pascal in the four five spot with Norm starting? Can you see that sustaining for a long period of time and being successful? I mean, I think it could, but I just don't think you want to manage things that way. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you, you know, you, you, it's tough sometimes because the starting lineup feels like the most important and it is playing the hardest minutes against the other team's best lineups. But also like you have to manage the rotation for 48 minutes. And, and you know, it's, it's, this is one of the arguments you can get into for not starting Baines as well as like, you know, if you start Baines and then you go small and one of those guys comes off the bench and has to play 18 minutes straight to end the half, that's a problem. Um, but at the same time, I, I think, you know, committing to too much of that could have a cumulative fatigue effect. You know, the schedule is more condensed this year than we're used to. Um, so when you're talking about guys like Pascal and OG having to play up a spot, um, you know, you're kind of limiting your depth too, because there's only some times you're going to want to play Baines and Boucher together. Um, I don't know. I'd be, I'd be tempted to start with it in any like game I really need to win. Um, but I'm also like, I'm, I'm not in the camp that like Norm has to start. I don't see why he can't be a scoring punch off the bench. And I don't think, you know, I, I think he's the worst of those five in terms of overall contribution. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be, I, I would be surprised if Baines isn't back at the starting lineup at some point. Uh, now talk to me come playoff time. If they're against, you know, the nets or, or a team that you can start small against more comfortably, right. uh, yeah, they, it's a it's a great weapon to have. It just it's exhausting for forty eight minutes over seventy two games. I think. Yeah, could be could be more matchup based. Um, you, you, speaking of depth, we talked about uh, Kyle Lowry being out of the game. Um, so obviously there there's not a ton of depth at point guard there for the Raptors. So I guess like switching gears to the the nine oh five and Malachi Flynn start there. Obviously he's had to put up some big games. Uh, what have you seen from him so far, and what do you think of his future with the Raptors? Yeah, he's been cool. You know, uh, um, I think his start with the 905, the first three games, maybe uh, you could tell he hadn't played in a little bit. Right. And, and, you know, he had 100 or 105 minutes or something like that with the Raptors before he went down. Um, I actually had a good chat with him when, when he kind of got out of quarantine down there about, you know, what the mentality he was trying to take down. And it seemed like he was pretty excited to to take the right approach and, you know, even have the room to make mistakes. Right. Like it's one thing. It's one thing to, to sit on the bench in the NBA uh, and work on your player dev stuff and try to get better. But if you don't have actual game action to like make mistakes and, and see where to get better, uh, it's a little tough. So I think, 
you know, it sounded like he was embracing that. He certainly trended in the right direction over the course of the bubble. Um, his fourth game, which was against Santa Cruz and Jeremy Lin, he was unbelievable. Like that might have been, you know, that's a top five performance that I've seen in the G League bubble so far from any team. Um, maybe even top three. It was completely dominant. I think he had like 35, seven and eight with four steals, really efficient scoring, um, kind of led the team to the victory against like a pretty vet team that that you know this is that's a great test for him right like he's played you know, he played jared jack uh jeremy lynn and today he played yogi Farrell in a small amount of time um so those are kind of the guys you want to test them against right like it's yeah it's the g league but those are all guys that have experience playing nba backup roles and are the kind of guys he's now going to face if he gets second unit minutes uh so good to see him thriving against that um coach matumbo with the 905 kind of you know criticized the, not criticized them but was just like you know, let's pump the brakes on the stat lines. You know, he's still making some poor decisions early in the clock or, uh, you know, we need him to, to be more of a leader at certain times. And I, I think he's embraced that uh, the last couple games. Today, he was he was solid. You know, he uh, he really likes that pull-up three uh, in transition. So keep an eye out for that if he gets in the game. Um, yeah, all, overall, he wasn't, like, crazy efficient or anything. But he, he just looks – it reminded me a lot of – like, I don't – I think the comparisons between Malachi and Fred are overdone. Like, I don't think they're similar players. Um, but it was that same kind of, like, when Fred went down to the 905, there was just, like, a casualness to his approach that, like, you're not speeding me up. Like, I played four years of college. I'm, I'm too smart for these tricks. Like, I, I'm just here waiting. And I think Malachi didn't look like that the first couple games. Uh, but certainly the three games this week, he, he's looked a little more like that. Looking ahead uh, more to the future and as they approach the trade deadline, um, if you were Masai and, and Webster, how would you approach this trade deadline? Are you a theory of they're an Anthony Drummond away or Andre Drummond away from being a serious contender in the East? Or are you of the theory of, you know, trade Lowry and let's play the young guys a little bit more? No, I don't, you know, I don't think it's a, a Drummond away. And I think the, the Drummond thing is just, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to make that cat math work anyway. Like, it's just you know, not to get into the the nitty gritty of the salary cap, but it's just, it's a really difficult deal to, to make work. Um, so, you know, it, that, that thing's tough. Um, it's weird. I, I kind of had March 5th in my head as the cutoff where you want to make these decisions by uh, it's roughly the midway point. You've got that week off for the all-star break that can kind of function as like the winter meetings of the NBA of sorts. So I think you want to have an idea of that by then it's tough. Like I, I don't, I think the Lowry stuff, just to be completely clear, is entirely Lowry's decision. I think, uh, you know, that's if he comes to you and he says, I'd like to go somewhere with a better shot at a ring, you do your best to make that happen. If he says, I don't want to go anywhere, I move my family to Tampa, I want to see this through, then you don't entertain it. Um, Norm is more the swing piece for me because I think if you're trying to land, not Drummond necessarily, but a Drummond type salary wise, Norm's deal is really helpful. Uh, he makes ten and a half million. You pair that with Stanley or or Makar or both or Baines or something, uh, and you can make some money work. Uh, but also, if you decide to sell, you know, wing scores come at a premium at the trade deadline, and you don't want to. Norm's a big part of the culture and a big part of what they do. But if they decide, you know, if come if come late March, there's still a couple games under five hundred. Kyle's thumb requires surgery, something like that. Um, you know, they've lost a lot of guys the last couple of years and this is the cost of a championship and you're fine with this going in but all, a lot of the free agents have left without getting anything back right um and it's hard to keep 
the stockpile of players that way, like when you're picking late and you're trading away picks and you're not getting anything back. And again, obviously you take a ring over, you know, getting a second round pick for Danny Green. But when it's Danny and Kawhi and then Serge and then Mark and, um, you know, if, if Norm leaves in free agency, then uh, it, it's tough to keep that going. So Norm's a guy I'd explore uh, in either direction, I think. But I think we're a couple weeks away from knowing, you know, like 28 teams are still in the playoff race right now. I think yeah. it's just a little early. Yeah. No, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. My thoughts on the, the whole Drummond situation is wait for him to get bought out. Uh, hopefully that happens. And actually, ta- I think being in Tampa is an advantage for them in terms of getting some of the buyouts and getting the people to come. Uh, I think that's an advantage in terms of being in Toronto. Uh, the, it's a quick stay, you know, in Florida. Your thoughts? I don't know how much Tampa swings anything. Like, you know, I don't, it probably doesn't hurt. It's nice weather. It's no dealing with customs and stuff like that. But I think sometimes that stuff's a little overstated anyway. So, um, We'll see. I, I personally think, you know, you got to look at Brooklyn as the number one destination for any bio guy. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, I don't know. I don't know how much appetite teams people have to be go be the third center on, on one of the L.A. teams. Maybe that's a thing. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just don't think, you know, a guy that makes twenty nine million dollars, it's just very hard to to come up with trades that work. So I, I do think buyout is certainly uh, a possibility. Blake, you mentioned that part of the fun you're missing out on is interacting with the players. So curious, over over time and not just current players, who's the most uh, the player that you've had the most fun interacting with and why? Uh, um, most fun, uh, Bebe, Lucas Noguera. <laughs> um, he's just like, he was always available. He liked talking. He would share music takes and movie takes. And um, he was just a, a pretty entertaining guy. Um, I was sad to see him retire recently because of injury trouble and some mental health stuff as he tried to fight back. Um, but he was always, you know, pretty thoughtful, pretty insightful, pretty funny. Um, you know, on a more like on the more real side, like, um, Fred's a guy that I've been talking to him since back on some back in summer league when he was unsigned. Um, and you know, you guys know, you see the quotes and the scrums and stuff like that. It's, uh, he's super thoughtful, super intelligent, great ambassador for the team. So he, He's, you know, the most functionally good player to talk to, but no one tops Bebe's like, <laughs> Bebe going on a rant about red hot chili peppers or uh, talking about learning the bass and, and stuff like that. You mentioned that, um, so the most fun you mentioned that. What about worst Raptors player with the with the media? <laughs> Who would be the worst player? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. It's, uh, you know, there are some guys who just like don't like to talk, right? and and yeah. Or just aren't super outgoing like 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 Kawhi. <laughs> i mean Kawhi ended up being better than we got warned about though like yeah Kawhi, okay. like as long as you ask the basketball question you still yeah, got an yeah. answer kyle's um, not the best either to be honest yeah kyle's kyle's probably the most frustrating because when he wants to he gives incredible answers yeah and he's so smart like i remember once back when I was like early in my career, one of the first times I ever went, this was before Kyle was in the role where he had to do scrums every day. And I asked him about the steal that he had and he made a great play and transition the other way. And I asked him about like, you know, what is your decision-making process as you're running in transition? And like, you could pass here, you could pass here, you could drive, whatever. And he walked me through like LeBron style of like, okay, this person's here, this person's here. If I do this, then this happens. If I do that, then that happens. And like now sometimes I see him and his answers are just like, nah, Blake, 
I'm like, man, you can still give me those answers. Yeah. Um, His body language is horrible. Too. Yeah. But he's, I mean, he's good. It's, it's, it's fine. It's uh, like, yeah. you know, I, I don't mind the, the bit because when we do need answers or when there is like a big moment with the team, he always does, you know, he gives us what, what we need at the right times. It's just like, you know, a February practice on the second off day in a row <laughs> in Boston, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. he's going to mess around with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Grange especially. He's definitely going to mess around with Grange. <laughs> Has there ever been a time where maybe you published something, you wrote an article on whether it was the game or a person's poor play and a player or coach like came at you or attacked you once it was published? Yeah, there have been a couple times, a couple small ones. Um, you know, the general rule of thumb is that if you're going to write something, and obviously we can't physically do this uh, right now, but if you write something negative, you got to be in the locker room the next day. Like you have to be there and be accountable for it. Um, my, the rule I try to go by is, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big reactionary writer anyway. So usually if I know I'm going to write something that has a negative tilt, I know a little ahead of time that that's where I'm going with it. So, um, I try to get the players input on it before I write it. So, you know, there was an example the other year where there was like a three or four week stretch where Corey Joseph was just getting blown by like crazy on the perimeter. And it's like, like Corey Joseph is a good defender. Why is this happening? And I knew it was going to write about it, but I was like, okay, well I should probably ask Corey Joseph's opinion on why Corey Joseph is getting blown by so much. Now I worded it more nicely <laughs> than that, but, um, but that's kind of the thing. And, and, you know, um, Nick's bristled a couple times when I get too deep into the X's and O's, he, he, has said he doesn't like coaching through the media. Um, you know, there was one time I wrote about the Spain pick and roll and Sergio Scariolo, like he, he, his Spain, his Spanish national team coaching staff, like quote unquote invented that. But in my story, I had found this clip from like the late eighties um, that predated Spain using it. And he was, he, he was like wondering where I got it from. Um, so usually it's funny stuff like that. Like I've had like Damar, chirp me on twitter like way back in the day it's it's fine like the the big thing is is like i'm pretty confident like i want to be right more than anything else so if i write something and it's negative i'm pretty confident like backing it up and you know i i think you guys saw earlier in the year when fred joked on a scrum about how everyone kept saying he was he was bad at finishing it's like i know you're i know you're talking about me fred like i wrote i wrote that piece but you know you you back it up with your analysis and you're willing to like answer for that if they want to bring it up like it's it's mostly fine it's the same thing like we'll lose run into it with chris boucher online i think kareen ran into it with terrence davis like it happens sometimes every everyone's very yeah. online has there has there been a moment when you've been as you've been covering the raptors uh where you just like kind of stopped and paused and said holy shit like this is really <laughs> cool what i'm doing and what was that moment yeah um i've had a couple so the first one was like really early on uh, when Steve Nash was GM of the Canada senior men's national team. That was like, that's the worst I've gotten starstruck trying to interview someone. <laughs> and like, I was on the elevator with him down out of the practice facility at Scotiabank Arena and just like, didn't have anything like I just couldn't. It's like, holy, that's Steve Nash. And I'm like, one week into my career. Um, so that was a that was a, a weird one. Uh, I think the first time the first time I scrummed Vince Carter was a pretty big one too when he was back at Scotiabank. And then, um, you know, the dunk contest Toronto all-star weekend was a big one where it's just like, I love, I love the dunk contest so much. 
Um, so that was really cool. And then, and then the finals, you know, I was really fortunate game six of the finals. I, um, Will Lou and I were actually sitting next to each other. So to have come through Raptors Republic together, come through the score together, um, be at the Raptors winning a championship and, and sitting next to each other. Uh, those are all kind of moments. They come <laughs> up enough, you know, you never really like the, the job doesn't really lose its shine. Like maybe those guys in San Francisco have covered like five finals in a row, get tired of it, but I don't, yeah. I don't think you can really get tired of that. Uh, take us back to uh, June 13th. You mentioned that you were in Oakland when they won. What, what was the day like? What do you remember heading into the game after the game? Was it crazy? Because we know we actually partied in the city when that happened, and we were like, you know, first witnesses to the whole, you know, parade and jumping on police cars. But you were in Oakland, so uh, <laughs> what happened there? Yeah, it was uh, obviously a different experience in Oakland, um, especially because the game was tight, right? So you can't can't get too far ahead. Um, So before game five, because they were up three games to one, I had, um, you know, you don't, it's weird. Some people pre-write and I'll pre-write for like free agency stuff. Like when Kawhi left, I had a story ready to go and I had a Kawhi comes back story ready to go. Uh, For the finals, I know some people were doing that and I was really hesitant to because like I wanted to like feel it, right? (laughs) Um, You don't know what that's going to feel like. So uh it was a bit of a scramble and a hustle to do that um the night of obviously it was great but um it's also just a chaotic night so like our press passes there were like different levels of press pass for those games so we had to go from our seats and scramble down underneath and then you have to choose like we couldn't be on the court but then you have to choose are you going to the locker room to get that are you going to the podium room to get that and um you know danny green comes out and sprays us with champagne and uh um (laughs) so it was cool it was you know write a couple things at the arena because there's so much stuff to write and then um we went back and and there was like a like a bar and finger food for um writers at one of the hotels um so you do that and we're all kind of like writing while we're doing that still (laughs) and then i honestly didn't sleep i uh I just rode through the night. I ended up writing like four things. And then in the morning, I didn't have a flight until late afternoon. Uh, so I just like walked around San Francisco all day. <laughs> just like it was a sunny, beautiful day. And I was just kind of like, uh, yeah, I don't know. What's the word? Adrenaline yeah. is uh, yeah. I was just, you know, I had to check out of my hotel. I couldn't couldn't go back, go to sleep at that point anyway. So um, it was pretty cool. That's what I remember. But obviously you don't get to party and so yeah. i i know there's the there's the highlight of uh will lose smoking the cigar but <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get to do that i had a couple did beers you, but did you um, end up getting the uh drake hat with the uh ovo championship shirt no i have i have some drake ovo stuff from from over the years but i don't have uh i feel weird about buying gear yeah. so it's kind of <laughs> just like like because i cover the team it's the same way i feel about jerseys now i used to be a big jersey guy and now I, it feels a little odd um so yeah i don't i didn't get any of that stuff i don't have much from the finals at all actually i have cool. one of those knock offerings one of the fake oh, yeah, rings. <laughs> blake i guess uh one last question from us we have a, a bet going on with uh the over or under on 38 and a half games and raptors wins you're taking the over or the under on 38 and a half wins i will take the over let's that's go you here first that's 26 from now yeah. yeah, 26 and 18 the rest of the way. They could do that, right? I think so. Not that I can't close out games. It, so I so. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not putting $100 on it, but I'll take it over <laughs> for the purposes of this podcast. <laughs> One, Another question we debated um, a little bit ahead in the future. Is Kyle Lowry a Hall, Hall of Famer? Yeah, I think so. Um, you look, he's got six All-Stars. <laughs> 
Um, he's got he's only got the one All NBA and no All Defense, which is mm-hmm. bonkers to me to go back and look at some of those seasons and see he didn't get those. But you know, it's the Basketball Hall of Fame, so he has a good college career. He's played for the U.S. National Team, six All Stars, an All NBA, uh, a championship ring you know maybe a seventh all-star at this point he's gonna hold a ton of raptors records which which obviously looks good and then i mean the longevity too like he's he's creeping up some of the some of the leaderboards with uh you know this is what his 14th or 15th season like Mm -hmm. it's uh you know he's gonna have a pretty good statistical case like like he's gonna get the he's gonna cruise past fifteen thousand points and six thousand assists and um yeah i think he gets in he should anyway Blake, want to be uh, respectful of, of your time. It's been awesome talking to you. Really appreciate you doing that on a game night too. Uh, but I'm going to open the floor to you if you wanted to promote anything on your end as well. Yeah, just the usual. Um, you can read my stuff at The Athletic. And if you don't have a written subscription, you need like a discount code or promo link or whatever. I've always got them floating around. So just DM me. Um, otherwise, thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, Blake. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, Blake. Thanks a lot for your All time, best, Blake. Man. All right, enjoy thanks, the game, guys. Thanks. Thanks. You too. Thanks. All right, we're going to introduce a new segment. It's Starter Bench. So I'm going to list off a few sports and pop culture topics, and the boys decide to start or bench. Start means I agree, and bench means I disagree. You you guys ready to roll? Let's go. Let's do it. Okay, so our first topic is Luca starting over Dame on the All-Star game. I would I would say bench, although it's close. I think Dame is having the better season when you look at numbers wise and the position that his team is in in the standings. Yeah, I'm benching that. It's time to start giving Dame Lillard the respect he deserves. He's in a small market in Portland, and maybe not as many people are watching him out west, but he deserves to be in that starting lineup. The Dallas Mavericks are probably one of the more disappointing teams in the league this year. Luka Doncic has played well, but not as well as he should be playing. So Kendall Jenner and D-Brook, they made their Instagram official post. Are you guys going to start or bench their relationship? I'm going with bench. The Kardashians will do anything they can do to stay relevant, and this is just another example of that. Like, wasn't she dating Ben Simmons like three months ago? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to start it just because uh, I think Kendall's different than her sisters and her siblings. And D-Buck, I don't think like his play will get affected by it. They look good together, so I'll start it. Yeah, 100% <laughs> I'm starting this. Kendall Jenner is an angel brought to you by God. <laughs> she could do no wrong. And I think D-Buck's a nice dude. Like He seems like he's going to treat her well. So I think she gets what she deserves. We're switching up to food. You guys <laughs> start or bench blue cheese with wings? I'm probably in the minority, and I'm looking at Luke's screen like he's going <laughs> to jump on me. But I'm going. Uh, I'm going bench. I'm not a fan of it. I don't know if it's just blue cheese in general or with my wings, but the wings have enough taste and enough sauce to begin with, and it doesn't need anything extra. So I'm going bench. If blue cheese sold jerseys, I'm pre-ordering them. <laughs> blue cheese. Blue cheese is the goat of of dipping sauces, especially with a nice hot wing. A hundred percent start. Yeah, I'm start. But like Luke said, an important point there. It has to be hot wings. If they're if they're mild, yeah. I, I, I'm oh, a, I'm a yeah. bench. But if, if they're, they're mild, get them off yeah. the table. <laughs> they have to be hot with the blue cheese, or it doesn't is not as effective. Do you guys are you guys going to start or bench the Maple Leafs being a legitimate contender for the Stanley Cup? They played a couple of high school teams in Ottawa and Vancouver. Start or bench? I'm all over start um, from top to bottom. Really? Yeah, you can only you can only play who you play. What a shock! You can only play who you play. Um, this year, I see a different. Toronto Maple Leafs team 
they're more defensive focused uh, up and down their lineup their defense core is a lot better than it ever has been in recent years um, I like the different elements they have on the forward group uh, and that I haven't even mentioned that M- Matthews is the MVP right now uh, he's playing <laughs> out of this world i don't i think to me the canadian division is the second or third strongest it's by far not the weakest you can only play who you play coming from this man who sat on this podcast and attacked (laughs) me over the steelers schedule it's like i i'm for now i'm i'm benching this um because i don't think any of these regular season games matter what matters is the leafs in the playoffs they need to prove something in the playoffs, and I think this is great. They look good, but at the end of the day, if you go out in the first or second round, it's still a failure. So at this point, I'm benching it until they prove something in the playoffs. I'm kind of jumping on what Luke said. I'm I'm benching it, but they, they do look phenomenal, but they're doing what they should be doing. Everyone before the season picked them to finish at the top of the division, at the very least second in the division. But when I do watch these, some of the plays they make, which are highlight reel plays, are they able to do that against a Boston team, against a Vegas team, against a Colorado, St. Louis? We haven't really seen them. And that's not to discredit them because, they're again, they're playing who they should be playing. But I want to see them in the playoffs because that's always how they're going to be measured. Are the Utah Jazz a title contender? Starter bench. I'm going to start this with a good amount of caution. They're playing incredible basketball. Nobody's shooting the ball like they are. Um, they have a, an absolute force down low with, with Rudy Gobert, and Donovan Mitchell is an incredible basketball player and should be in the MVP conversation. Having said that, if you've looked at the past few winners in the NBA, they know how to just maneuver themselves through the season and then spark at the right time like the Lakers did last year. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the fence on this one, but I'm going to go bench. Um, I think they're playing great basketball, but it's only the regular season and the NBA don't give much um, value to that. Um, and to be a championship contender, I think you got to be at least like top four, top three. Um, and I still have the Lakers, Clippers and Nuggets ahead of them. Uh, so I'm going to go bench. Is Serena Williams career over after losing in this in the semifinals? Start or bench? I'm going to go start. Uh, she dominated women's tennis for almost, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Um, she's one of the best athletes we've seen in our generation. Uh, but unfortunately, it's she, father time's caught up with her, and she, her, I think her career's over. She's not going to win another major. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go start. It just seems like, Mikey, as Mikey said, like everyone kind of caught up to her. Osaka's an up-and-coming generational star. It looks like she's going to be dominating the sport of tennis. Um, and I just don't think her body's going to hold up due to some key injuries that she's had in her career. Um, so although a great career, I think it, I think her time's done. Padre superstar Fernando Tatis Jr. inks a 14-year, $340 million extension. Uh, I'll start. I'm going to go with Bench. Uh, Tatis is a generational-type talent. He's looked great uh, in the little that he's played, and that's the, the part that I don't like. I don't like the precedent sense precedent it sets uh this guy hasn't even played a full season in the mlb yet i think he's at about 140 games and you're gonna give him 340 million um that that for me for that reason it's a bench i'm benching it i don't think it's from either the player or the team side i don't like the idea of signing a 14 year deal um so for that reason and that reason alone i'm benching it Well, we're super excited to have Mike Johnson on the Center Bench podcast, the head coach and GM for the Portland Winterhawks and former head coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Mike, welcome to the Center Bench podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. 
So I guess uh, first question, I, I've been to Portland. I uh, really like the city. So my question to you is, are Voodoo Donuts overrated or underrated? Well, there's a lineup every day and it goes on until about probably two in the morning. So I would say <laughs> that uh, they're definitely not overrated. There's a, they have a huge following and, and it's, um, it's popular in Portland. You can see the pink boxes everywhere. We should have sent you a, a box for your birthday for joining us on, on your birthday. <laughs> Starting back to when you first got into to coaching, what was the end goal for you? Where did you want to be? Where did you see yourself? Um, and how did things change along the way? Well, primarily I wanted to stay in the game. And then I guess the second part of it was I graduated from university with a degree and I wanted to get a job. And at that time there were no teaching jobs. So I was fortunate enough I decided I would go to Australia for a year and a half and kind of play some hockey. They were forming a pro league down there after finishing at Brandon University. And then when I came back, there were still no teaching jobs. So I was uh, phoned by a friend who said that there was a small college in Alberta that was looking at hiring, but they wanted uh, somebody who could teach, uh, someone who could live in residence and take care of the a male residents. And then the final part was someone who could coach hockey. And so I could teach, I could stay in residence, but I'd never coached before ever. So I applied for the job and I got the job. So I was really lucky to get an opportunity like that as a young guy to coach college hockey. And I was, I think I was just turning 24 and most of our players were 19 to 22, 23. So almost the same age. Like you had some experience in the 1998 Olympics in Japan, um, being part of the Team Canada coaching staff. Um, do you have any fond memories of what that experience was like coaching that team? Well, fortunately, I, I had uh, three or four years of working for Team Canada uh, full-time. And then each spring, we would take NHL players to the World Championships. So that was my first ever experience with NHL players was those world championships. So I coached in 96, 97, and then, and then we had an opportunity in 98 with the Nagano Olympics uh, that they decided that the NHL players were now going to go to the Olympics. So that was that, that experience in the world championships really helped me because all of a sudden you're, you're going in as a young coach with, you've got the best of the best. We had the best Eisenman Gretzky, You've got Bork, you've got McGinnis, you've got all these great players. You know, our goaltenders were, were Bordeaux, uh, Patrick Waugh, and Joseph. Wow. So, so a, a pretty good uh, trio there of, of goaltenders. So they, at times it would be intimidating, but I didn't feel that intimidated going in there. I was excited, obviously, as a Canadian going to the Olympics representing your country. And then not only that, you were, you were coaching in you know, Canada's favorite sport in hockey. And uh, it was with the national team, it was an opportunity that was very unique, but we had a chance to go over there during the year and prepare when the NHL players were playing. So, so we went over to Japan three times that year, just to take a look at the village. Um, our national team played some games and we just got ready for the Olympics. But it was it was exciting. We finished fourth, as everybody knows, after the shootout. But it was it's one of those very unique experiences. Anytime you can represent your country, I feel it's special. Mike, you mentioned a ton of great leaders and and future Hall of Famers on that team. So I guess take us behind the scenes. Who were the real leaders of that team? Well, Eric Lindros 
uh, was our captain. If you remember during that time frame, Gretzky's career was kind of tapering off. Eric was the profile guy in the NHL. Uh, but to be really honest, uh, Gretzky was our captain and our leader. Um, he, he, he led the group. And you can always tell who the leaders are when there's some adversity. We didn't have much adversity in the tournament, but obviously we had adversity in the Czech game where it was a tight game and it, and it went into overtime, then went into a shootout, and we lost in a shootout. We hadn't lost any games in the tournament. And a lot of people look back at Nagano and say, oh, what happened to Team Canada? But we never lost a game until the, the, the crossover game. And we lost in a shootout, and then we had to go to the bronze medal game. But Gretzky at that time really rallied the troops, um, spoke up in the room, just even off the ice. For me, I watch him off the ice and how he interacts with kids in Nagano. Uh, just they're waiting waiting by the fence before we took off in the bus and he would go over and talk to kids. We did have probably, I don't even know, I haven't counted it up, but I would say of the 24 players that probably – 18 or 19 might be Hall of Famers. But Gretzky stood out for me. You talk about great leadership in Gretzky. Um, you spent some time with the Pittsburgh Penguins being uh, fortunate to work with Sidney Crosby. Um, what was your experience like with Sid and what did you kind of take away from his game on and off the ice? Well, I'll just mention that my time in the NHL with the Vancouver, LA and Pittsburgh, um, like those were great experience with some great players. You have to remember in Vancouver at that time, we had Nazem, Bertuzzi, Morrison, Jovanovski, and then we, and then we had the Sedins coming, coming in. And all of a sudden I go to LA and Kopitar's in his first year. What a phenomenal player, a phenomenal kid. Even at 19 years of age, you could see he was going to be a great leader, great player. And, and then, and then the crowning one was to go to Pittsburgh as their coach, with Crosby um, and Sid, when you know when I look at Sid as an athlete, everything you see and you hear about him is exactly true. Like he works hard at his game, both in the summer during the year. He's thoroughly prepared every single day. He thinks hockey 24/7, and if he feels his game is lacking in any area, he'll he'll go out on the ice before practice and stay out after practice. Um, he works hard. And so some people say, oh, yeah, he's really talented. He is talented, but he deserves it because he'll go in the summer in, in Colorado to altitude late in the summer to train because it feels like that's going to get him ready for the season. He doesn't leave anything to chance. And that's why those guys are great players. So I've been mm -hmm. fortunate over my career to be around great athletes and now at the junior level, hopefully I can impart some of that knowledge that I've had at, at the NHL level to these guys who want to be those guys at the NHL level and, and give them some advice at 16, 17, 18. So maybe they're better prepared um, to be those types of players. Mike, is there a, a story from Sidney Crosby that kind of defines who he is that you would tell to your junior players now today? Well, the first one was, when I asked him where he was going before training camp, he told me he was going to, to Colorado and he was going to train at altitude. I just thought that was something you don't hear from a player every day. And then, and then I remember there's probably, he doesn't go in many slumps, but he was in a little bit of a slump, uh, had trouble scoring, but I just, 
I went out on the, on the ice, just out to the bench one day. It was about 45 minutes before practice. And he had Rick talking out there. Rick was working as an assistant with me. He had Rick out there passing him pucks in a certain area of the ice and working at his game. And, and I just thought, you know, that's what separates these guys. Other guys, if they're having trouble or struggles, they'll complain or they'll maybe pass it off on other people. But he was taking ownership, working at his game. If he missed a, a backhand a shelf shot one game, you'd see him take 10, 15, 20. Uh, in practice, he always bugged me about uh, making sure when we did the power play, we always did it live, five on four. I, I wanted to do five on all reps. I didn't want guys to get hurt um, from shots. And nobody wants to kill penalties in practice because yeah. we've got to do it in a game. But he always wanted it live. He wanted full pressure. He wanted it live. He wanted uh, the intensity. And, and that's just the way he was as a player. Mike, you listed off some, some great players that you were fortunate enough to coach in the NHL. Um, and it's kind of switching to the junior team with the Portland Winterhawks. As a coach, do you have a change of philosophy, whether you're coaching in the junior league versus in the NHL? Yeah, and I've been asked that question a lot over the years because I've coached at different levels. And also I've coached for a long time. So um, for me, the simple answer is no, I don't change wherever I've been. And the reason I don't is because I think all players are the same. Uh, if they're going to accept coaching, they want to know that you're going to give them something that can help them be a better player. And so as a coach, you've got to search for ways to help that player be better, whether it's some skill things, some strategy things, some review of video. It's Maybe it's off-ice workouts that he's got to do. Um, different, different things that they can adjust and adapt to. And as a coach, when I came to the pro level, it was teaching skills, kind of finite skills to players at an elite level. So they're really good at their game, but there's little things that they can do to be better. And you have to find those little things that can separate them. And if you can, then obviously anybody's accepting of coaching. So for me, it was always trying to find, you know, how I could deliver the message, how I uh, could communicate with that player, and then what could I do about their game? How could I help them be a better player? And um, that's all any player wants is they want to, to improve. They want to have longevity in their career, whether it's a junior career or a pro career. They want to try and play the game as long as they can. If you can help them, uh, then they're all in. From a general point of view, Mike, what do you look for in a player, uh, junior level or in the NHL level? Yeah, well, what we tell our scouts at our level, and uh, probably the same at the NHL, is we look for four things in a player when we select players for the Portland Winterhawks. We look for skating, we look for skill, and the game has gone that way. It's, it's a faster game, there's a lot of skill in the game, but the two most important things for me as a coach that I tell the scouts that'll separate all players is their compete and then their hockey sense. For the most important for me is hockey sense. If, if a player doesn't skate very well, but has great hockey sense, they can play the game. And I'll go back to the Sedins. Uh, Henrik and Daniel, when we first got them in, Van in Vancouver, they weren't great skaters. They're not dynamic. They're not McKinnon. But, but they thought the game and they anticipated and they read the game that they could play the game fast because of how smart they were they could play the game fast. So I look for hockey sense, even in young kids, 
you can go to a rink and you can watch Bantam hockey and I can look at a player and you see the game is nice and calm and, and the guys, the game's kind of quiet. It's not rushed. It's not hurried. Those to me are players that have great hockey sense. They slow the game down. And you hear that often in other sports that the great players, the game slows down for them. And I think that that shows, that's an indicator to me that the person has really good hockey sense. Mike, you've been coaching the game for a while, so you, you have a good sense of, of some of these uh, kids that you're coaching and their destiny or their future destiny. And obviously, every kid's dream is to make it to the NHL, but obviously not everyone can get there. Uh, how do you coach the kids that maybe aren't destined to be to the NHL um, to not only improve their hockey game and find something within hockey, but outside of hockey as well? Well, the first thing we do is... is Everybody in our room believes they can play in the NHL, and I want them to believe that. When they come in at 15, 16, I want them to believe they can play in the NHL because it's been very evident to me that sometimes you look at a player and you say, I'm not sure if he could really do it, and he does. He, he breaks through. Maybe it's a character thing or a perseverance thing, or he, he breaks into the NHL at 26, 27, 28, and you thought maybe he could. So we believe all our players can play in the NHL. We want our players to believe that. But the other thing we do do is, at least with our program, all our players go to school every day, every morning. So every player, it doesn't matter if you're assigned NHL player or not, you take college classes in the morning or you take high school. You're in one or the other. And then you, then we do weight training closer to lunch. Then we have our lunch. Then we do skills and we practice. That's kind of our daily routine. So indirectly, we're preparing them for life after hockey, but we don't really ever talk about life after hockey. We want them, we want them motivated. And I believe that, you know, we've had over just over 40 players in the last 10 years from Portland sign an NHL deal. So, so it's possible. And, and they see other players in the room getting opportunities. So I want them driven because you never know where kids could go over, especially, we're talking about teenage kids, you know, teenage yeah. kids, they, mm -hmm. they mature and they develop physically and their game gets in shape. So a lot of things change over that time period. Mike, we had Doug McLean on last oh. episode and he kind of went through some uh, interesting and unique questions, uh, interview questions when going for coaching jobs. Um, do you have any funny or unorthodox experiences when interviewing for a coaching job, whether it was for a head coach or assistant coach? I don't know if Doug, Doug, if you knew Doug McLean and I crossed paths. Uh, we're both we're both from the Maritimes. I'm from Nova Scotia. He's from Prince Edward Island. Yeah. But when I I wanted to be a university coach, so I coached at small college, like I was telling you in Camrose. But I went back, took my master's degree because I wanted a university job, and as the, the day I finished my degree, University of Brunswick had let their coach go. And so I went down for an interview back home, basically. And then so I went to Fredericton, went for the interview. And I remember the guy saying, well, we've struggled for about three or four years. The last good coach we had was four years ago, Doug McLean. And then he left. Oh, and, wow. like <laughs> and, I thought, and I thought, well, that's great. I said, if I, maybe if I come here, I'll get to go to the NHL. <laughs> <laughs> and so so I heard so many stories about Doug McLean when I was at the University of Brunswick. And and then over the years, because we had friends in common, 
and we're from the Maritimes that we always cross paths. I, I can imagine he was very entertaining on his podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's always got stories. He's always got stuff. And I think he's, yeah, and he's a he's a good hockey mind, you know. He really is. Um, and I look at Brian Burke, what he did on, on TV recently. And Berkey, I think, is a really good hockey mind. And I, th- I think Doug is. Some of those people that have transitioned into those jobs from the hockey world. But, um, yeah, it was, it was neat when I went for my first job and, I didn't really know Doug McLean, but they said, well, Doug McLean was the last good coach. We <laughs> and uh, he was here four years ago. So we want the program to get back on strong footing again. So. Yeah, he was he was telling us he was actually uh, interviewing for the role that you went on to get with the Penguins, uh, and Rutherford had asked him what what would you do if if Sid or Malkin lash out on you. So we thought that was pretty <laughs> funny of a question to get asked. I can imagine what he would say. <laughs> <laughs> and and did that ever happen when you went on to get the the job? Did did you ever have an incident with with Sid or Malkin where they lashed out and you kind of didn't know what to do because they're such superstars? No, no, they all have did. Uh, there was different personalities there. There were the four big personalities. So you had Flurry, and you know Flurry. You look at him in Vegas and what he's done, and and he was the a smile on his face every day, energy guy. Practiced till the last guy left the ice. Um, have fun in the dressing room, pull pranks. Then you had Chris Letang, who's a you know big time player. He was more of a come into the coach's office. Have, he'd be in here. This morning, having coffee, want to look at his shifts from the night before, talk about the game. Then you'd have Sid, you know, very prepared, very detailed. He'll know the next team. And then you had Gino, who was just kind of carefree. <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever. He just comes in and and he he's a multi-talented guy, but he's kind of a free-spirited athlete. So all four of those guys were the big personalities in Pittsburgh. Certainly, Sid was the biggest, but they all impacted the team in different ways, and and they all were such different people. And it was it's an interesting group that way because I liked the mixture of those dynamics. Fleury kept everybody loose, but Tang was very serious in his prep, like Sid, and then Gino was kind of free spirited. He had a little bit of everything in that group. That's what made them so good. You mentioned that uh, Fleury was a little bit of a class clown in the locker room. Can you share any stories in general when you were coaching the NHL? Was there more class clown or any pranks that you can share with the, uh, the podcast? The guys are always, you can imagine the road trips are really long and, and, um, and demanding and guys are always trying to loosen it up or whether it's, you know, uh, shoe checking under the table or it's ties or it's shaving cream, you know, the traditional ones you hear about. But over time I found what happened was is that the guys became so serious and there were nights on the road I remember with Mark Crawford where we pull into Chicago we might have an extra day we tell the players hey guys you know you go a little bit longer tonight we've got an extra day tomorrow relax and then we'd be sitting there having a drink Jack Mac- late Jack McElhardy Mark and myself having a drink and, and all of a sudden we'd see the guys coming in at 11.30 Quarter to twelve or something, and uh, the guys nowadays, the players, they have fun, but it's it's really changed. The road trips are really changed, very serious. Um, this year, you talk to the NHL people like you probably have, it's even more demanding. They're playing every second day, all the time, 
And obviously with quarantining and, and staying safe uh, with, with COVID, it's a real different environment for them. But they, those guys love that. And guys like Flurry in your dressing room, or we had Pascal Dupuis at that time, um, those types of people, um, those energy guys, every good team needs those guys. You can't have a, you can't be serious all the time. There's too much pressure at the NHL level on players and too much scrutiny. You need a, you need a chance to get away from it. And those guys are invaluable. If, if I was building a team, I'd look for three or four of those energy flurry type guys because they're the glue guys. And you can see how Vegas, you know, rallies around them the other night when yeah. he was on a streak and winning those games and got the shutout, you know, they're all over, yeah. uh, you know, a guy like that brings your team together. Mike, I guess uh, just to close us off, you mentioned this is an unusual year in terms of preparation and the amount of games. Why don't you tell us how you're getting your team prepared for this upcoming season? Well, it's been a long, it was a long fall and winter where we weren't sure if we were going to be playing. But what we did with our players, which was really interesting, was we did 11 weeks of uh, Zoom calls once a week. And so we would do something as a coaching staff with our group. And then we invited NHL personalities on. Cool. So we had uh, Kyle Dubas, Doug Armstrong. Uh, we had um, Seth Jones. We had some of our former players. We had Scotty Bowman. We had different guest speakers come on. And they would, our players never really knew who was going to be on that week. So they would tune in and we would capture their attention for what we wanted to. And then the, the speaker would present them whatever they wanted to. You know, I remember Mike Babcock talked about you know, hockey, what he's learned, the game, junior, but he also went into mental health. He talked about mental health. So he did a little segment on that. So that was really interesting and it kept our players engaged because they're home and they're isolated. But now we're starting to ramp up. Our players come in a week from tomorrow. Uh, we're excited. We're going to play a 24 game season. Our focus here will be on development, uh, making sure that we're ready for next year and we try and help these players. Um, get exposure to NHL scouts. So that'll be a priority for us. And just get the guys playing the game. It's it's almost a year since our players left Portland. Awesome. Mike, It's it's been a pleasure talking to you. Really fun to, to hear these stories and to chat. Uh, happy birthday from all of us. I uh, really appreciate your time and hopefully we can connect again Mike, sometime. Mike, you 25? Yeah, Want some cracking years now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. Take, Take care. care. Thanks, Mike. Enjoy the Thanks rest a of your lot, day. Mike. Take care. From one MVP to an, the next MVP, let's talk Wentz. Okay, that's, uh, you heard it here first. Mikey thinks it's uh, he's going to be an MVP. So a little bit of background. Wentz got traded to the Colts. I'm sure everybody knows. It's a If I'm not mistaken, it's a third and a second conditional, which is probably going to be a first, right? What do you guys think? I'm going to flip it over to you boys. I like the trade uh, from a Colts standpoint. If you're only going to really give up a third round pick, I guess in the following year, it can potentially be a first round. But by that point, if Wentz is what he's advertised to be in that reclamation project with Frank Wright, and he's playing at that MVP level caliber season, you don't mind giving up a first round pick for your future quarterback. He has to play well, but he doesn't have to be the guy also. like He has a strong O-line. He has Jonathan Taylor in the back end. Michael Pittman should have a breakout season. Hopefully they sign another wide receiver. 
So he has all the tools in front of him. So now it's time to put up or shut up. He has no excuse now. And I, I expect him to do well. You look at the stats from the 2017 season when he was with Frank Reich as his offensive coordinator. And as everyone kind of said, they're MVP caliber like numbers. So I think with a strong Indianapolis team from top to bottom, offense and defense, he'll fit in nicely. And uh, I think he'll have a strong bounce back season. Yeah, this is a dream scenario. Uh, there's, he's got everything in place. Pale mentioned it. I was worried he was going to go to the Bears there for a second. And I hated that situation. But yeah, it's it's time for him to show up. And I think he's going to. I think he's going to be the next MVP. Yeah, to, to steal some words from our, our good friend John Shannon, this one for me is one of those that's too early to tell. Does he have the potential to play at, like Mikey said, that MVP caliber uh, or that level? Yes, but at the end of the day, you can't take potential to the bank. I think it's very rare for a quarterback to play at an elite level, then go through a major slump and then come back to that elite level. And if you look at past MVPs, it's all they all tend to be like minus maybe Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, they all tend to be earlier on in their career and on a trajectory that's upwards. And that hasn't been the case for Carson Wentz. And yes, his scenario hasn't been the best in Philadelphia, but there's still some statistics out there that show his blatant inaccuracy of passing the football. I'm not 100% sold. And, and let's see what how next year plays out before we go into anything in depth. What yeah. year What year did he play as an MVP caliber? 2017? Yeah. And what, what year is it now? Twenty twenty one. It's twenty twenty one. Just check my calendar. Yeah. So I don't know. Like that's that's a long time. And I, I and what I see, I see Wentz two games out of the year as a Cowboy fan. And yeah, sure, the Eagles situation wasn't that great. But like Luke said, his some of his throws were just on him. He like lame mm-hmm. ducks, making bonehead decisions. Sure, you know he's going to a coach that. Yeah, he coached him in 2017. It was an MVP caliber. But some of these players just digress. And to me, I don't think he'll uh, get into that MVP caliber mode. But having said that, the Colts really made a great trade. Like, they didn't really give anything that, to me, you know, was a ripoff. What, you know, what are you going to do to Luca when he's better than Dak? He won't. He won't. There's no <laughs> way. And we're going to finally no put the Wentz is better than Dak debate to bed. There's no way. There's no way. I can, I'll, I'll bet that. Actually, there's from no a, way. From a Colts standpoint, too, though, like they needed a quarterback and they didn't have all that many more options once Stafford was gone. Yeah. Sam Darnold, potentially, but it sounds like yeah. if he is going to get moved, Chicago has the better offer for him. Mm-hmm. So they, they didn't really have that many options to begin with. And I think it's a, it's a good risk to take because the ceiling's very high. Yeah. I just, I, th- I think that. Jacoby Brissett the year before also had not the exact same tools like they didn't have Jonathan Taylor obviously which is a major piece in that offense but like Jacoby Brissett played well within that offense but he he wasn't the same as Philip Rivers or or as they were last year so I don't think we we can say that you can plug any average quarterback in there and they're going to succeed right not any average but I wouldn't compare Jacoby Brissett to the level of Carson Wentz in terms of talent wise for sure at this point I would (laughs) <laughs> it, if you you can't compare Car- him to Carson Wentz at Carson Wentz's peak. It's it's, it's just the yeah. question of whether or not he can return <laughs> to that peak. I'm gonna put a hundred bucks on it and I'll take my three grand. <laughs> <laughs> and I also love Colts Colts Super Bowl yeah. too. I already put a small weight yeah. on Colts Super Bowl. What's his percentage chance that he's gonna return to his MVP caliber? Do you think? I give it a I give it a close to eighty percent. Eighty. I'm high on it. <laughs> Oh, high high. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just solely based off the coach and his we- and the weapons. I mean, like in the, Philadelphia, the, the talent's last couple there. Of years, he, 
he didn't lose his talent though. Like you can't teach uh, talent. He still has all the tools. Man, man, I, I was some of his throws last year. I was I'm high on him. I was gonna go forty percent. Like yeah, I was gonna say I was gonna say thirty <laughs> to forty. Yeah. You know he's got to go back to his MVP caliber. Like not yeah. be a top ten. Yeah, not not be a top ten quarterback. Fair. Top ten quarterback I think is eighty percent. Yeah. MVP, which MVP, is like okay, top MVP, three. Yeah, I can't guarantee MVP. No. Yeah. So how how do you think Philly's like feeling right now? Because they just dumped a shit ton of money with this guy and now what a year and a half two years he's gone to the Colts do you think the hell's going on here or they're glad to get rid of him I mean I think as a leader of an organization you can't look at your look past at your sunk costs right like at the end of the day they can't change that Wentz contract it's in the Mm -hmm. past I actually think that them getting rid of Wentz was a positive day if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan because now you're turning the page right you got a new head coach coming in. You got a new quarterback, young and hopeful quarterback. Um, yes, you still need to build around him, but now all the talk and all the drama is kind of in your rear view mirror. And also, they're what, a top 10 pick as well, so they might draft a quarterback. You never know. Get a little quarterback challenge if they don't like yeah. Hurts. Yeah, they got the number six overall pick in the draft. I was talking to my brother who's an Eagles fan, and he was he was saying, like, oh, he was a little disappointed because he kind of wanted to see Carson Wentz and, like, what, what that – number six pick could have landed them Mm -hmm. but what i told them is like you never you never know like first of all like a young rookie yes they're developing quicker but it's going to take whoever they draft some time to to fit into that offense and it's not going to change the culture of the team overnight shout out to mark by the way all right well that wraps up episode 11 thanks to our special guests this week blake murphy and mike johnson awesome stories loved hearing about crosby and gretzky we'll see you next week for episode 12 